Canto 11 begins interestingly because it's a canto in which they actually pause and take stock. They've not exactly chosen to do so. You'll remember that um, as they came away from the domain of the heretics, they were overwhelmed by the foul stench that's emerging from the pit of hell, um, the stench of sin, if you like. Um, and it's too overpowering, it's too much to bear. Um, and they need to take time now to recalibrate um, so that they can tolerate um, what they're going to see, um, which Dante expresses in this powerful image of the stench of hell. Um, so it's a canto about understanding, about sort of, as it were, refocusing, which again accentuates that now we're, or underlines rather, that now we're moving into sort of deeper aspects of hell. Um, you see, evil, in a way, doesn't get more simple um, as it gets worse. It gets more subtle. And it's going to take time for them to be able to, um, to be ready, really, to start to appreciate these subtleties. Um, you, you'll notice we're just at Canto 11 and already in the sixth, on the verge of the seventh circle of hell. You know, quite a long way down, purely in terms of the rounds. But it's going to turn out there's a lot more to understand about these lower rounds. Um, a lot more nuance um, to learn about, to, um, to see more clearly. Um, and that's going to be a powerful emphasis now as we proceed um, in the descent, um, trying to deepen our understanding of these things. Um, so they take a pause and it says that they crouch um, beneath um, an imposing tomb um, that they see. Um, I mean, notice that imposing tombs, which on earth can look so powerful and impressive, um, are found in hell, in fact, and not in heaven. There aren't tombs in heaven. Um, so, you know, nice little play there about what you think you're looking at when you see an imposing tomb on earth. Where is this really leading, you might say? Um, and they read something on the side of the tomb as well. Um, Dante thinks that it's the tomb of a pope um, who had been led astray by um, a heretic. Um, but it says in particular that they were lured from the straight path. And this, of course, reminds us that they have just returned to and um, proceeding left-bound um, down through the circles of hell, having taken this brief um, route right through um, amongst the heretics. This balance, they've had to follow their own path so they can make it their own path, and but not so extensively followed their own path that they'd lost the cosmic or divine path. Um, again, this kind of balance of sight that Dante's trying to achieve. So it signals both that they've returned to um, the right path, they're finding their way back right onto the right path, but also that this balance is something they're gonna continually um, have to toy with. Um, and get right, which this Pope, whose tomb they're now crouching beneath, didn't. And it's really important as well because what's going to become clear in this canto is that Dante reaches very widely to gain this sight and understanding, to gain this nuance. Um, in particular, he reaches to Aristotle explicitly now. Um, Virgil's going to say, don't you remember your ethics of Aristotle? Don't you remember your physics of Aristotle? Um, and this is quite surprising. You know, Aristotle um, is still pretty new at this time. 
Um, he'd come back into the West from the Islamic world um, about a century or so before. Um, early inquiries into Aristotle's work and how it might enrich the Christian vision had met a lot of barriers. Um, Thomas Aquinas's works, for example, um, the philosopher, theologian who's so important to Dante, um, his works had been banned for vari at various points. Um, but it's now um, uh, been seen increasingly as actually bringing new light and illumination to the Christian dispensation. Um, so, you know, um, this is the vanguard of, uh, of knowledge, you might say. Um, the vanguard of divine inspiration as well. Christianity is presented throughout the Divine Comedy, um, not as something fixed, as if a sort of deposit of learning um, that um, you just have to keep returning to. Christianity is being presented throughout the Divine Comedy as a kind of platform that can include, reach out, embrace learning that might seem quite alien to it, um, but that creates this sense of transcendent um, uh, insight um, that can reveal things that just couldn't possibly have been conceived before. It's a tendency we're going to see throughout the Divine Comedy, particularly in the Paradise. Um, you might say that this is about Dante becoming more and more aligned with divine grace. Um, remember that this canto is still very soon after the Angel of Dis, that sort of shock intervention of the divine power um, to get Dante and Virgil through the gates of Dis. And rather than it just being a sort of bewildering, awe-inspiring shock, um, Dante's challenge very much is to understand more and more and more about what that might all mean, so that he can become a co-worker with divine grace. Um, and the implication is beginning to really settle down now, that to do that, the human individual has got to reach out in all directions that they possibly can, um, to reach out right across the cosmos, you might say, right across creation. And why wouldn't they? Because this creation, this cosmos, is all within God's wisdom, is all within God's love. Um, and you're going to begin to see explicitly um, the first signs of that in this canto when Dante and Virgil discuss Aristotle. You might say, you know, God wants living souls, not programmed robots. Um, and whenever Christianity is presented as just a kind of dump of doctrine that you've got to blindly follow, Dante is very clearly saying that be careful where that leads you, because it might lead you to be entrapped in hell quite as much as someone that you thought was a heretic, unable to see the full extent of God's love because you're unable to see or refuse to see across the extent of God's whole creation which falls outside of Christendom as well as being found within. So the key understanding that Dante is going to learn from Virgil now um, is that whereas the souls they've encountered so far um, their desire, you might say, gripped them in perverse ways. You know, so um, the lovers who get fall in love with love rather than love leading them to more and more, or to souls that get entrapped with violence um, that leads them just to attack others in a kind of dyad, rather than the, the sense of anger um, that might help them to see uh, more broadly, um, to shake things off in order to see more broadly. Um, now what they're going to see um, is desire that very perversely turns against God, turns against nature, and actually turns against the individual as well. Um, 
And then even more profoundly in the deepest reaches of hell, they're going to discover that the fraudulent, who don't just get led by their desire um, in the perverse ways of violence, the bestial ways of violence, you might say, um, but actually deliberately calculate to turn against God, to turn against others and to turn against themselves. And that's why they're in the deepest, furthest places from God, um, because of this sense of calculation. Um, they're not just kind of caught up um, in mistaken desires. They're not all even caught up in the kind of rage that leads to violence. They're coolly and calculating turns against the divine, against other human beings, against nature. And that's what leads them to be so profoundly trapped and so profoundly distant from God. So the first of these lower circles is to do with violent, and then the second lot are to do with fraud. Um, and just to underline again, you know, we're, we're, we've got a long way before we get to the end of the Inferno as a poem, even though it seems like we're quite deep into hell now um, in the sixth circle, um, because violence and fraud are so difficult to understand. I have wondered um, whether we might use a bit of sort of modern knowledge to understand this differentiation, um, much as Virgil is about to use a bit of Aristotle to understand the differentiation. Um, and the difference that I draw on is a difference from psychotherapy, where it's quite common um, to think about the person you're working with, whether they fall into the category that you might call um, neurotic, um, or whether they fall into a category that is sometimes called the borderline category, or whether they fall into the category that's called the narcissistic group um, of difficulties. And the point about this, you might say, is that someone who's caught up in sort of everyday neurotic um, uh, tensions and, and sufferings and pain, um, is you might say that they still know who they are, they still who know who, who others are, but they've just got a bit entrapped with mistaken um, understandings, mistaken desires, insights, um, arising no doubt from earlier experiences and so on, um, but that with some uh, steady reflection um, they can uh, understand what's trapped them, uh, fears can ease um, and suffering can turn into a new desire or joy for life. Um, these are the kind of um, experiences which we all have. The person who is sometimes called borderline, um, I use these time terms lightly, you know, they're really just descriptors that try and help us uh, see that something a bit more profoundly um, is at play. Um, and you might say that um, this word borderline signifies someone who has lost a bit of um, the sense of the difference between themselves and others. Um, they're much more porous and they find it difficult to hold boundaries. Um, uh, they um, don't, can't, can't contain their anger, for example, and because they're not quite sure whether they're being angry against themselves or against others, you know, the world has become that bit more blurred um, and less contained. Um, so that means that they're much harder to work with um, in, in psychotherapy. Um, and it sort of parallels, I think, um, this uh, the violent um, circle of hell, because you might say these are people that uh, readily break um, the, the body boundary. Um, you know, most of us have, most of the time at least, some sense of who I am and what's not me. And so that kind of contains our distress um, and also contains our outbursts. Um, the person in the borderline state of mind um, doesn't have that body boundary um, and so they're like, more likely to lash out um, and you know that's another reason why they're harder to work with whether that be lashing out 
to others or, or to themselves. And then the third element um, uh, you might call um, the narcissistic person meant in quite a specific sense, um, not just a person that struggles to love themselves, um, as I mentioned earlier on actually when we were in the, the circle of the lustful, um, but meant more particularly now, um, the person who really in a way doesn't see that there are other people in the world, there aren't really other people around them um, for these kind of individuals, they're very much trapped in themselves. Um, we'd understand this now as arising from early experience where it was too dangerous perhaps to recognize um, that there was someone else around in the world, you know, perhaps through abuse, um, perhaps through other causes, um, and so they turned in on themselves. Um, and it led to this really desperate state actually, um, where the first very difficult learning is to really even know that there are others in the world. And you know, the narcissistic person might try and make the world in their own image through a kind of exercise of power. Um, they might constantly try and charm um, the external world into existence um, because they're trying to see whether it's really got life. They're not in a way sure that there's more life than just their own inner life. Um, when you really see and, and feel this condition, it, it's very desperate. People feel really out of reach um, and it can lead to all sorts of um, really very tricky behaviour. I mean, this category of person actually Freud, when he first realised it exists, um, he thought you couldn't work with narcissistic people in, in psychotherapy because they'd never really gain a sort of deep sense that they were in the room with another person. They would if you ask them factually, of course I know you're there, but in a sort of felt sense they can't reach out and so remain closed off. Now that's changed in modern psychotherapy. Um, there are uh, ways of working with that condition, although it's, it's hard. Um, but in a way Freud's insight is not a million miles away from Dante's insight, who recognises that there are people who have so turned against themselves in what he calls the fraudulent, we're going to come to quite what that means. Remember, these things never mean quite what they appear to when you first hear the word. Um, but um, the, the basic insight that there are some people who might be so cut off um, that it can at least at times see as if they're forever entrapped, sort of beyond rescue. And that is a real experience, um, and it's important to recognise it. It's part of the descent, because in a way it's only when you recognise that it can feel like that at least sometimes that maybe there are other possibilities, um, other ways of reaching out to these people. Um, you might say that divine grace might touch them after all. But look, I don't want to spiritually short circuit that possibility. We're a long way from that. The only way you can really see that is by going into the descent, which of course is what Dante and Virgil are doing. So Virgil's um, categories are um, now um, the violent um, and then the fraudulent. Um, and he explains this to Dante. Um, it takes sort of three attempts through the canto. You imagine them, they're still sort of sat underneath this tomb. They haven't moved, they're talking, waiting for them to adjust to this deeper stench, this deeper darkness. And it takes sort of three rounds for um, Virgil to get this across to Dante enough. Um, the first round is when he explains what they're going to see to Dante gives them a sort of description of the circles of the violent and the circles of the fraudulent. Um, it's not really enough for Dante, he doesn't quite get it. In a second attempt, Virgil says, look, turn to your Aristotle, what have you learnt from this new learning, this new philosopher? Um, and 
It's not explained directly in the canto, but we're led to presume that Dante would have thought of Aristotle's doctrine of the mean, as it's so called, um, the midpoint, you, know, you might say. And this is his idea that good character, good virtue, comes from learning. It's a learning um, doctrine. You've got to make mistakes, as it were. The descent is part of this learning. Um, but that when you learn from your mistakes, you realise that, say, take courage, um, is midway between foolhardiness, which would be kind of just running into the centre of the battle, running directly towards what you're afraid of without really thinking, um, and, say, cowardice, which is just running away, running in the opposite direction. The courageous person builds together um, their sort of desire, their, um, their, their capacities um, and their insight in order to, to judge how to approach what they're afraid of, feeling the fear, um, but doing it anyway because they're aware of how to negotiate it enough. Um, so the idea is that um, when Dante records this doctrine of the mean, um, Virgil says, look, in a way, that approach to virtue um, helped us to understand what had gone wrong um, in the upper reaches of hell. You know, um, uh, the, the courageous um, people had failed to be courageous, you might say. They'd failed to adopt this doctrine of the mean and had become either foolhardy or coward, cowardice. And so and that was their sort of their difficulty and their failing. But now, Virgil says, something completely different is going to be required um, to understand what's going on I mean, these deeper reaches of hell. And he does say to, to Dante, remember that um, Aristotle had said there's also um, failings of malice and failings um, of bestiality. And they roughly cor correspond to the violence, um, which is the sort of bestial behaviour, and then malice, which is the fraudulent behaviour. And so Dante goes, oh yes, I do remember him saying that. Um, but again, it's not quite enough. Um, and uh, a third time Dante comes back to him and says, I don't quite get it, can you help me a little bit more? And he does this in a pretty powerful way for us now, because he does it by focusing particularly on the, the sin of usury. Now remember, usury was, uh, had heavy taboos against it in the medieval world. Um, it was very, very contained and constrained because of that. Um, and Dante here wants to use that case in point to illuminate the deeper reaches of hell a bit more. And it's shocking for us because now we live in a culture which is entirely based on usury, um, lending money on interest. Um, and we're all involved in it, um, whether it be mortgages or pensions, um, or whether you, know, you have a savings account and so on. Um, it's what's led to the massive expansion of material well-being and goods, um, and you might also say instability in the modern world. Um, but So it's difficult to reflect that, to understand what the deeper reaches of hell are like. Dante, at least in this first instance, turns to usury. And Virgil explains to him that um, usury um, is so foul because you might say that it turns against the image of God in nature and also turns against the image of God in ourselves. Um, Virgil says that um, but both nature and we human beings in our art, in the way that we co-create with the divine in our life, sort of make something of ourselves and of the world around us through our art and creativity. When we do that in line with God's creativity and art, um, which you see reflected in nature, then we can flourish, then the divine image in us can reach out to its fullest extent. We're in line with grace, we're in line with God, 
And so this is taking us back to God. This is part of our return, part of our attempt to the divine. But usury is so foul because it forgets that um, creation and making um, has a kind of wider orientation towards the divine. And instead it turns on itself and just makes money for its own sake. Um, it lends without bothering about what's being made. Um, it's, it's a perversion of the image of God in the world around us and within ourselves. And so Dante gets that. He immediately sees that usury does that. And so it illuminates for him um, enough for now anyway um, to, to, to move into the deeper reaches of hell. Um, but, you know, it makes me wonder when I read this canto, what do we not see? What am I not seeing? Um, because um, our lives are now so deeply embedded in these everyday little practices, you know, borrowing money, lending money, and um, paying into a mortgage, paying into a pension, um, that might very subtly be perverting life so that we don't, we lose touch, you might say, with the divine impulse that runs through nature, with the divine impulse that runs through um, our creativity, our imagination, our art. Um, and this is now way beyond what Dante thought, of course, but perhaps it begins to cast some light on why it can feel like our civilization is going so wrong, even as material goods around us so flourish. Because there's a sort of deep understanding that somewhere we become unaligned from grace. Um, as it were, when the angel of dis appears to us and we just see it as a howling wind and don't understand and don't just feel awe but feel genuine fear um, and so turn again a bit more away from God. Um, you know, is there a really big message actually in this canto for us who are trying to see the divine? Um, certainly it's a good introduction for us trying to understand these more subtle, deeper turns of hell. And at the end of the canto, um, they're ready, they can face the stench, they move out from underneath the tomb and begin to descend that little bit more.